Well, the passage that we're going to look at today is going to be your gift. And actually, Chad mentioned to me a couple weeks ago, knowing how much I love the book of Isaiah, because it feels like every chapter you turn, there's a bunch that's like, what is going on here? But then there's also these little nuggets, these, these key takeaways that have like all of history wrapped around them. And so he said to me, he's like, you know, I bet for you, Isaiah is like Christmas morning. And I thought, he's, I think he's even more clever than he realizes because that's exactly what it's like. Not only because it's so exciting to turn every page and see what is the next gift, but because here in this passage and over the next couple of weeks, Isaiah is not only describing who Jesus is going to be, he's describing exactly what that first Christmas would be like exactly what the details of his birth were going to be so that when he came, we would know it was him. And so today in Isaiah chapter 7, we are seeing a prophecy that is as mind-blowing as it is heartwarming and comforting. And it comes in in the midst of kind of a strange historical moment because it says in verse 1, it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, Now, if you were here for our series in 2 Kings earlier this year, you would know Ahaz is one of the bad ones. This is not a good guy by any stretch of the imagination. You don't even have like a silver lining for him. Everything he could do wrong, he was doing wrong. So it came to pass in his days when Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, that would be Ahaz's family, he's from the line of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim, another word for Israel. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. Basically saying, they're swaying back and forth, like they're going to faint from absolute fear. Fear is taking over the hearts of the kings and the people because of the circumstances around them. Now, I know if you're like me at all, you look at these couple verses, and like all of verse 1, like just your eyes glaze over, right? These places I haven't heard of, these people I haven't heard of. So I want to give you just a little bit of context for that. This will help you kind of throughout the book of Isaiah. So if you can't read all of the small font on here, don't worry. You can jump on our website and actually pull up the PowerPoints from the messages because this has some detail that will help you define things throughout the rest of the book. But for now, I just want to show you that you see Judah down here by the Dead Sea. Now, to the north of Judah is Israel. Remember, once upon a time, they had been a unified country, but now they are divided. Judah to the south, Israel to the north. And even further north than Israel, all the way at the top of our map, you see Syria. Now Syria was one of the strongest powers at that time and Syria's forces have now moved into Israel. So when it's saying that this is the king of Syria and this is the king of Israel and you're scared of both of them, it's because he's not just thinking about some far distant thing. He's not just like a worry word who always comes up with something to fret about. No, the enemy's troops are literally at their border. And they're afraid. You know, even as I was thinking about this passage, I think it is hard for us sometimes to really sense what that must have felt like for Ahaz or for the people of Judah. They are constantly surrounded by enemies. 
Egypt to the south, Syria to the north. Israel often is their enemy as well. Uh, You have the Assyrian Empire just hanging out around the edge there, waiting for their chance. Babylon is beginning to build power. They are surrounded by enemy forces. So to help you get your mind into this just a little bit, if you've been paying attention to the news, you know that just in the last couple of days, Hamas has attacked Israel in a way that hasn't happened in like 50 years. That there have been hundreds of people killed Now Israel is retaliating and they're saying that this is likely to be war. That's 2023. I mean, in many ways, if you read through scripture and if you read through history, that's what they've lived under almost the entire time of their existence. And so as much as we know that Ahaz is like not one of the good kings, I think we have to give him a little bit of grace for the fear that he's facing. Because the circumstances around him are just as real, just as deadly, just as fraught with war as the kinds of things that we still read in the news today. And so as you think about God's people in Judah facing this kind of fear, God isn't going to leave them alone. In fact, part of what he does in this chapter is try to demonstrate exactly how he is with them right now. And so verse 3 says, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, take heed and be quiet. This is a phrase that essentially means calm down. It's actually the same phrase that you get in the Psalms when he says, be still and know that I am God. You're spending a lot of energy in a lot of different ways trying to save yourself, trying to figure out the world, trying to fix things that you can't fix. Hold on a minute. (laughs) Take heed. Listen to me. Be quiet. Calm down. Do not fear or be faint-hearted. For these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. He's basically telling them, I know you're worried about these two countries, but I want you to be still. Be quiet. Hear me speaking. In fact, you notice Isaiah's son is named Shear Jashub. Not a very common name. And in fact, if you read the entire book of Isaiah, you'll notice that most of his kids' names are actually prophecies in and of themselves. So Shear Jashub actually means a remnant shall return. So God actually says, Isaiah, don't just go alone. Take the son whose name means that regardless of what the enemy tries to do and regardless of what the future holds, God will still keep his promises. He will still save a remnant. He will still bring his Messiah. Now think about that. Remember, Ahaz is one of the guys of whom we can find nothing good about, and yet God is still reaching out to him, and he even brings with Isaiah a son whose name is a promise of the goodness that God wants to show You see, here's the invitation for Ahaz that I think is the same invitation for us this morning. To hear the Lord warning and wooing. I don't know about you, but a lot of times in my life, I am am totally on board for wooing. Like, yes, God, win me over to you. Tell me about your blessings. Warning. um, uh, La, la, la. (laughs) I don't necessarily want the warning. But that's part of God wooing. Right, is to show Ahab where he's actually going to do more harm than good. So we can think of any number of different type of kind of sin issues, but for Ahaz, one of the things that was happening was he did not believe that God was trustworthy. 
And so at this very moment, if you go back to 2 Kings and read the history, Ahaz is planning to try to pay off Assyria from even farther away to come in and defeat his enemies for him. Well, God knows that Assyria will take your money and destroy you. Ahaz, your fear is going to do more harm than good. He has to warn him about where he's off track with God, even as he woos him back with these promises. And so in verse 5, God basically tells him what's going to happen. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramalia have plotted evil against you, saying, let's go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves, and set our king over them, the son of Tabal. Well, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. Like, just so matter of fact, for all of the plans that the enemy is making, God just says, yeah, it's not happening. And I love this because you see this. We were singing this morning about the strength of God, how our strength rises when we wait on him. All over scripture, you get these moments where God just kind of sits back, looks at the enemy, says, hey, you know, talk as much as you want, make as many plans as you want. I'm not letting that happen. It's not happening. It shall not come to pass. So the first thing he tells Ahaz is, I know what you're afraid of, and I know it looks grim. Just trust me, it's not happening. Relax. Then he goes on in verse 8 to tell him what is going to happen. For the head of Syria is Damascus. Okay, so Damascus is its capital city. The head of Damascus is Rezin, the king in the capital city of Syria. But within 65 years, Ephraim, that's Israel, will be broken so that it will not be a people. And then I've broken this text out kind of in a strange way so you can see the parallels because now he's going to say almost the same thing but slowly direct it toward Ahaz. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, that's its capital city, and the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son, that's its king. But now look how he turns this to Ahaz. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. So just like Israel is living in unbelief and within 65 years they will not be a nation anymore, then he turns to Ahaz of Judah and says, likewise, if you will not believe, Surely you shall not be established. And this is where he begins now to turn from the warning to the wooing. Because in verse 10, something surprising happens. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, hear now, O house of David. And notice this switches from Ahaz specifically to the house of David more generally. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Now, on one sense, doesn't the Bible tell us not to test the Lord? Maybe he's doing a good thing here. Well, actually, he would even have that. Back in Deuteronomy, it says, Thou shalt not test the Lord thy God. Well, what a good guy Ahaz turns out to be. No, I I wouldn't want to test the Lord. (laughs) Okay, so he's basically just pretending to be pious, okay? So it it looks for a moment like, oh, maybe he really is trying to think about what God's instructed them and, and wants to follow that. But he's basically playing. Because he's not testing the Lord. The Lord just offered him a gift. When God says, ask anything in the depth or the height, he's basically saying, there is no extent, 
No measure I won't go to to try to show you that I'm with you. So ask for anything. Again, if you remember the history in 2 Kings, his son Hezekiah, when he had this chance, he said, uh, okay, then I want the sun to go backwards. So it did. <laughs> oh, wow. You can actually ask for anything. God offers that to Ahaz, and Ahaz says, I'm not asking. This is actually a moment of defiance. And I don't know about you, but when I read that, it is so easy to be like, man, this guy. Fortunately, I am never stubborn like that. Never have been, never will be. Ask my family. I am easy to get along with 100% of the time, <laughs> right? And yet there is something in us that I think at times doesn't quite want to hear what God might have to say. In fact, I was having a conversation with a friend a couple of years ago that kind of struck me just like this until I realized like, how much my own heart can sit in that space. Because we were having a conversation about some things in our culture and some things in Scripture and the ways that they don't line up. And she was having a really hard time kind of wrapping her head around that. And I said, well, let's slow down because I don't really want this to be like your opinion, my opinion, some other people's opinion, my parents' opinion, your friend's opinion, whatever. Why don't we find the passages in the Bible that actually talk about these topics, just see what it says, and see if we can make any sense out of it. I thought that's going to be a better way to go about this. And her comment was, um, well, I don't really want to read it. And I'm thinking, I mean, maybe it's what time it is. I don't, you know. Okay, fair enough. I'm not going to can't force any of us to do anything, but why? I was just curious, why not? She said, well, to be honest with you, I don't think I'm going to like what it says. Like, <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> and yet, like how many times in my life do I act that way, right? That if I think what I'm about to hear is praise or compliments or I'm just listening, I might not ask for them, but I'm certainly leaning in. And if I think that I'm about to be scolded, reprimanded, corrected, told something to do, something I don't really want to do, how much am I leaning away? And I just caught the tail end of that, but I think they don't know that I heard, and so maybe if I just leave. <laughs> well, and here's the reality. As my friend has continued to lean further and further into the Bible, I think part of it is because we realize that like me not listening doesn't mean it's not true, right? Ahaz not asking for a sign doesn't mean that God is suddenly going to be unable to work. And so what's kind of, I think this is one of the most shocking moments in the book of Isaiah, because the very next thing God says after Ahaz, he, he tries to woo Ahaz, he tries to help him, and Ahaz says, I'm not asking God. Then look at verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You could have asked for anything, and you refused to ask for anything, but you're not stopping God. In fact, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. What? That's where this comes from? Like, I mean, if God was going to give that sign to anybody, the virgin will be with child is like the whole thing of Christmas. This is the birth of the Messiah. That God is actually going to come not just in a, ta a tabernacle, not just in the temple, but in the flesh. 
I mean, this is the kind of stuff you should save for like Abraham or Moses. Like tell that to David. Or honestly, Isaiah is standing right there. Just let this be between you and Isaiah. That is too good of news to give to a guy like Ahaz. He didn't even want it. Man, isn't that part of the good news? Because it was actually, we're in chapter 7. It was only one chapter ago that Isaiah himself said, Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. Strange to think about, but God always brings his good news to sinful people. So when I could sit here and be all indignant that, man, Ahaz, a punk, gets to hear the best news in the world, like, thank God that Ahaz got to hear good news. Thank God that God always brings his good news to sinful people. He doesn't wait. When Ahaz doesn't trust him, God says, that still doesn't stop my plan. And I'm still giving a sign. And that was part of his wooing Ahaz. But when Ahaz rejects it, God is still wooing us. God is still wooing us back to him. And now there's a couple things that we've got to unpack here because the longer that you are a Christ follower, the more time you spend where you know you believe these kinds of things, the harder it is to remember, this is actually kind of crazy, right? He just said the sign is going to be that a virgin will conceive and bear a son. Which makes me think that Isaiah's parents forgot to have the talk because that is not how it works, right? And yet that's the sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. In fact, this is so crazy that in the time of Jesus, when people around him knew this story, realized this prophecy, connected those pieces and said, oh my goodness, I think this is the Messiah. People have actually tried to do kind of this revisionist history on Isaiah. And so you'll see this from time to time that they'll tell you that the word here for virgin actually means young woman. Well, here's the reality behind the word. We'll, we'll, we'll kind of do the easy version of this and uh, I'll take you to coffee if you want the hard version and the long version. <laughs> but for the sake of this morning, the word that's used there can mean young woman, usually means virgin. And every time the Old Testament uses it, it's used in the context of virginity. On top of that, before Jesus was born, when the Jewish scholars translated the Old Testament into Latin, the Latin word they chose is a word that only means virgin, which tells you that Jews from the time of Isaiah all the way to the time of Christ knew and understood that this was a prophecy that a woman who had never been with a man was going to give birth to a child. Now, that would be miraculous. Like, if that happens, that would be a sign, which makes sense, right? Because if you flip that around and say, well, it just means young woman, how much of a sign is it really to say, uh, a woman's going to have a baby? No way. How could that be possible? Like, that wouldn't be a sign at all. Uh, my wife actually volunteers in the nursery right here at Horizon. I'm telling you, women are having babies all the time. <laughs> You'd be like, so is that one a sign or is this? I'm not really convinced here, God. And so what he's telling them is there's a specific woman, the virgin, who's going to have a specific child, Emmanuel. And Emmanuel is a Hebrew word that means God with us. So those, they read right to left. So those first two characters on the right, that's im. It just means with. Anu, the two characters in the middle, mean us. And the two on the left, 
say El, as in Elohim, God with us. Now that is every bit as amazing because no other world religion even attempts this to say not only that God cares about you or that he's out there or that he's powerful or something, not only that he's sort of vaguely with you if you think about it spiritually, he's saying in the flesh will be a child who is actually Elohim. Elohim, who is unapproachable in his holiness and yet is near in his love and comfort. The invitation for us is to experience the wonder of God with us. To experience the wonder of God with us. That as we sing this morning, as we read this morning, as we talk right now, you believe this? God is with us right now. That has always been his plan. From the Garden of Eden when he created Adam and Eve and literally just took walks with them. Like I take walks with my dog. Imagine if I could leave the dog home and take a walk with God. And when they had to leave the garden, God still said, I'm not going to scrap the project. I want to make sure they know that I'm with them. And so he gave them things like a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, a tabernacle and a temple that did not contain God, but gave them a place where they could point and say, see, God is with us. That's why the worship at the temple was so important for them for so much of their history. Now they're going to go into captivity, away from the temple, and they're going to wonder for decades is God really with us? And one day, the virgin will be with child. Give birth to a son who will actually be God in the flesh. Verse 15 continues this prophecy, saying that curds and honey he shall eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. There's a few things we could unpack here, but one is just to point out that the curds and honey seems to be an indication of poverty. Right? That he's, he doesn't get to have the beef or the lamb chops, only the curd from the milk that comes from it. And so this is one of those places where you see that prophecy has both a near-term view and a long-term view. Because in the near term, those two kings you're afraid of will forsake their land. Right? Because they're going to be destroyed, actually, yes, by Assyria. But also the long-term view that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to be born not into the palace, but into poverty of all things. That at the start of his life, you may not even recognize him as the king. And so you want to watch for the sign of Emmanuel, born of a virgin. Because then the rest of the chapter basically becomes what's going to happen to Ahaz and his household because they rejected Emmanuel. It says in verse 17, The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house. Right? So the guy that you're going to try to pay for protection, yeah, he's going to take your money and then he's going to destroy you. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the farthest part of the rivers of Egypt. All right? That's in the south. And for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, that's in the north, and they're basically putting the squeeze on Judah. 
They will come and all of them will rest in the desolate valleys and in the clefts of the rocks and on all thorns and in all pastures. He's telling him, when you reject Emmanuel, the enemy will take over your land. He goes on in verse 20 to say that in the same day, the Lord will shave with a hired razor with those from beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and will also remove the beard. Basically, the enemy is coming to cut you down. And it shall be in that day that a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, so it shall be from the abundance of milk they give that he will eat curds. For curds and honey everyone will eat who is left in the land. It's basically telling him the long-term pain of a rejecting Emmanuel is that your families will be poor. Not only spiritually, but physically. And that's that same picture of the curds and the honey. And that, that lingers, that lasts, not only through the captivity, but all the way up to the days of Jesus Christ. Verse 23, he goes on to say that it shall happen in that day that wherever there could be a thousand vines, like there's good land there, and it could be worth a thousand shekels of silver, it'll be for briars and thorns. With arrows and bows, men will come there because all the land will become briars and thorns. And to any hill which could be dug with a hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns. But it will become a range for oxen and a place for sheep to roam. The long-term pain of rejecting Emmanuel for Ahaz, your land will be desolate. It's going to be empty. Animals roaming, briars and thorns growing, because there's no one left to cultivate what God has given them. So for that whole back half of the chapter, part of what you have to hear is, that's not what God had wanted for them. That's kind of the, the pain and the consequence of his rejection. And if you summed it up, essentially God is telling them, if you don't stand with Emmanuel, you won't stand at all. And so that kind of puts it in the negative, but, but the positive side of that is, hey, stand with Emmanuel. I am God speaking to you right now. And I know that we don't always think that we feel that the same way, but I had a conversation this week where we realized, man, like Ahaz heard directly from Isaiah the prophet, like he knew God was speaking. And it kind of hit me like, oh, Actually, I'm hearing directly from Isaiah the prophet, too. I, I'm holding it in my hands. This was written down to speak to us as well, that he's giving us the same message. With Emmanuel, you can stand. Pay Assyria whatever you want. They cannot bring you victory, but Emmanuel can. Now, I know that that is a pretty big statement, because especially in our world, in our culture, if that said something more vague like, Try to be a spiritual person. Try to be a good person. Okay, I think we can all agree. As soon as you say, Emmanuel is the only way, and that's Jesus Christ. I mean, it's kind of offensive. It's a pretty, it's a pretty bold claim. You're really telling me that anybody who rejects Jesus won't stand? And you know, that would be a pretty bold claim if what we were talking about was based on myth. In fact, I was, I was researching this for, I, I have too much time on my hands, I think, sometimes, but I was researching ancient Troy, right? Because we all know the story, like, of the Iliad and the Trojan War, and, you know, guys, every time an NFL player blows out his Achilles, I think of Achilles, you know, whose mom dipped him in the river Styx, and so now he's invulnerable everywhere except his ankle where she was holding him, and that's why that's his Achilles heel. And somewhere during the war, he takes an arrow to the heel and dies. Like, bummer. <laughs> Somebody had amazing aim, right? So we know it's a myth. 
But in the back of my mind, I figured, you know, Homer wrote this myth, but it's got to be, I don't know what happened in the real Trojan War. What, what, what happened to the real Troy? Well, archaeologists went looking for this about 150 years ago, and there's literally no evidence that there was ever even a battle of Troy, let alone a Trojan War. What? <laughs> Like, why did I just, like, think that was real? But as they went looking for Troy, they found a location that they think may have been an ancient city known as Troy. And this guy, this archaeologist and businessman uh, named Schleiman, Heinrich Schleiman, he goes to this place and he starts not digging, he starts blasting. He uses TNT to blow away the earth from where he thinks it is. He gets down far enough, he thought he found Troy. Later they realize that's at least a thousand years too old to be Troy, but a little bit higher up, that might have been Troy, that one you blew up with the dynamite. <laughs> and so now, archaeologists are pretty certain that Troy probably existed because they found a few blasted fragments of things that may have been sort of like what could have been around the time of Troy. That is not terribly convincing. I don't know about you, but, but then we generally kind of agree Troy probably existed. So here's the reason I tell you that. By contrast... From a very similar moment in history, let me show you just some of the archaeological evidence for just Isaiah chapter 7. The first one you see here is actually a portrait of the exact king of Assyria that he just mentioned in verses 17 and 20, a man known as Tiglath-Pileser. And this is one of, of actually dozens of portraits we have of this Assyrian king, the one that Ahaz was trying to pay off. In fact, in this next artifact, we actually have inscriptions of all of the people that were paying tribute to Assyria in that time, between around 720 BC, right at the time of Isaiah, and this has been translated, and it includes Ahaz, king of Judah, paid tribute to Tiglath-Pileser. That Ahaz is not like an Achilles kind of made-up myth sort of person. He's not only in the biblical record, he's in the secular record too. This comes from the Assyrian capital, Nimrud, where they found this. Where it says exactly what Isaiah said, exactly what you find in 2 Kings 16. He's paying tribute to Assyria for safety. Now two guys you don't see there, all the way back from verse 1, Pekah and Rezin, because they were in rebellion against Assyria. And within three years, they will be recorded, not in the list of nice countries who pay tribute, but actually in this next artifact, where you see the destruction of the war in which Pika and Ramalia and their countries were destroyed, and some of what they would do to the soldiers and the civilians that they captured. And we can get even more specific than that, because in the final one I want to show you, this is actually a relief found in the Assyrian capital of Nimrud, of Israel themselves being taken into captivity. So I just showed you four artifacts. The resource that I, I drew these from had over 150 slides just to go along with this one chapter of biblical history. And, and the reason I share that is, is when I hear those kinds of things, when I hear that kind of evidence, that Isaiah spoke all of these things 65 years before they happened and with Christ 700 years before it happened, it makes me think, you know what? For all of the history that we've had in the Bible that we can question, and then we dig up these things, and it's like, oh, Ahaz was real, and he did pay tribute. Okay, fine, the Bible was right about that, right? 
Listen, if he's right about Syria, he's right about Ephraim, he's right about Pekah, Rezin, Ramalia, Tiglath-Pileser, and Assyria, all just from chapter 7? Is verse 14 about the virgin with child really the only thing I'm going to leave out? It makes me think if he was right about all of that, I think he's right about this too. And that is exactly what a tax collector named Matthew realized 700 years later when he wrote, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. Now we're actually going to do the book of Matthew in January, so I'll save some of the deep dive on, on this for the future, Lord willing, right? <laughs> but here's what I want you to see about this. Matthew, Mary, Joseph, the people who saw Jesus work miracles and teach with authority throughout his life, they look back at Isaiah and they realize it actually happened. It actually happened. That when God makes a promise, it's not a maybe. When God makes a promise, he's telling you what will happen. And you and I have the benefit that now we have hindsight. We get to look back and say, it actually happened. Just like Matthew to say, then if that's true, then I can trust God with me today. Because when Christ was here, one of the amazing things he said right before his crucifixion was, guys, I'm leaving and that's better for you. How could that possibly be better? He does miracles. They could literally put their arm around God, give him a fist bump, a high five, a handshake. How is it better if he leaves? Because remember, God's promised to be with us. Jesus said, when I leave, I will send you my spirit. And so God with us continues because if you are a follower of Christ who has trusted him for your forgiveness and to be the leader of your life, his spirit dwells in you. We can point to each other and say, see, God is with us. In a way that Isaiah never could. In a way that Matthew didn't know until Jesus left the earth. And that means that when I'm going through my day, I'm trying to do the best that I can as a dad. I'm trying to do the best that I can as a husband. I'm trying to do the best that I can at work. I'm, I'm trying to live the way Jesus wants me to. There are so many religions in this world that are built on, well, do your best. And maybe when you die, you'll find out if you really meet God and what he thinks about your best. The message of Isaiah 7, I am not on my own. God is with us. He is with us to bring us the victory that no earthly power, no earthly culture, no earthly plan, no strength of human beings could ever bring. Over sin, over doubt, over fear and anxiety, and ultimately over all of the broken things like disease and war and pain in the world itself. I had an amazing conversation literally earlier this week 
group of guys I've been hanging out with are, are just using Isaiah, using the pathway guide each week to go through this book together. And one of the guys was talking about last week how Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And so he's been trying to live that out. And he began to talk about how it helps him to think that God is with him as he does that. Because this is a guy who just a few years ago, in his early 20s, uh, lost his mom to a battle with cancer. And he was not a Christ follower before that. He'd been around God. He kind of knew a little bit about God. And that really shook him, shook his life, and made him start to question If God is real, should I be angry at him? Should I be talking to him? Am I supposed to be apologizing for something? How could this have happened if God is who he says he is? But as he began that journey, he began digging into scripture, he met the God who wants to be with him. It's changed his life. It's changed his marriage. And I I, I hear him now saying things about like, you know, I'm at work and I get stuck on something and I just can't seem to make sense of it and I'll just pray real quick. How do you know you could do that? You can pray at work about just whatever it is that you're working on. And he said in the last couple of weeks, really last several months, he's had an opportunity because one of his best friends, their mom, was diagnosed with cancer. His friend is not a believer, not necessarily interested in spiritual things. But he sat down with his friend and said, hey, can I tell you kind of what my journey with God has been and how amazing it is when you know that God is there, that he loves you, that he wants to comfort you, He's with you. And so now because of his sense that God is with us, he's begun helping somebody else open their eyes to that sign of Emmanuel. And I love it because one of the things that he said that helps him, um, and I do this too, so I don't know, maybe this is all of us. You can tell me later. But Like sometimes I'll just sit down and imagine like Jesus is sitting next to me. You know, like I'm driving and maybe he's in the passenger seat or I'm, you know, walking, and he's walking with me, and my friend, like, that's what I do too. And like, it just kind of helps me to realize that in the moment, when there's so much that you can see, taste, touch, smell, that's just right here, to just pause and think, you're helping me right now. Well, Lord, you go first. I'll, I'll follow your lead. And so maybe that helps you to get a sense of God with us to just take a moment and actually picture that he is with you. Because that's where this all began when he first made Adam and Eve, and that is where this is all headed. In Revelation 21, it says, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. There will be a day where you will see him face to face. But you don't have to wait for that day to have him with you and to get to know him. And so my encouragement for you today, believe Emmanuel for your victory. Wherever you need that in your life, in that relationship, in that diagnosis, against that temptation, that's why he's with us. To show us his love, to bring us his comfort, to bring us his strength, that we would experience the wonder of God with you. Can I pray for you? God, I, I just can't thank you enough that you were humbled to come and live as a human being, to be God with us. Not only to teach us how to live, but to fulfill all of these prophecies, to die for our sin and to rise again, that we could have eternal life. 
Lord, I know that there are times where I just, I feel like I'm on my own. And you remind me that, you know, my feelings aren't reality. You are with me no matter how I'm feeling. And so I just pray this morning for anybody listening to this, if they haven't sensed that, if they need to know, would you remind them, would you show them, would you speak to their heart and to their mind, you are with them, that you are Emmanuel. And we will thank you for that, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.